You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thank you all for coming. I'm delighted to introduce my good and old friend, uh, Professor Kathleen Smith from the from Georgetown University. Uh, she and I went to graduate school together. We've spent many happy days and it's happy in, in <laughs> Moscow. I remember her daughter, who is now off a, uh, as a full-fledged adult with a, a, a degree from Georgetown. I remember carrying her uh, stroller up and down the uh, the underpasses, going down Tverskaya. Uh, so time, time, time passes, right? Um, so uh, uh, Kelly uh, is trained as a political scientist, and I think uh, would say herself that her work has evolved in a, you know, more of a, a, a interdisciplinary uh, direction, especially given the way that political science has gone. And so I think that's an interesting model for some of our graduate students to see that that you know life can take different forms. And she is uh, 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 probably the leading scholar of. Uh, memory politics in uh, in, in Russia. Uh, her first book was about uh, you know remembering the victims of Stalin's repression, and uh, she has the good fortune of being able to say that that the people that she studies um, uh, uh, received the Nobel Prize. So that's, that's a bad. feather in everybody's cap, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and then she has a book on the uh, evolution of holidays and myth making in. Uh, in Russia, and then her most recent book was about 1956. And now she's, she always finds these sort of very interesting lenses to turn on uh, the, the Russian reality, and now we're turning to Perry Delcano, and looking at that, and looking at the issue of uh, the 1990s and Soviet writers, uh, and Perry Delcano is a kind of case study of that. So yeah. I'll turn it over to Kelly. I want to say thank you to Kathy for that gracious uh, introduction. In fact, we have many, many memories of uh, being in Moscow together, and famously, I'm not that good at following directions, so back before we had cell phones, she was always giving me exact directions. <laughs> We're going to meet in this metro at this place at this time, and then we couldn't find each other. So it was uh, it's a miracle she's still friends with me, uh, <laughs> given the number of times that she had to you know, walk in larger and larger circles until she found me. Um, but Kathy mentioned something important about me, which is that I see my work really as area studies work, as interdisciplinary work. Um, I've become less excited about being a political scientist because it seems like a lot of the big questions of power uh, have become so remote for scholars that although it's important that we study them, it's also very frustrating. Uh, and in particular, in coming up with this latest uh, project about Perydelkino, I wanted to look at something that Russians themselves valued, that people were nostalgic about. So you'll see today in talking about uh, this particular uh, era of the 1990s that there's a contrast between nostalgia for something that now seems idyllic and then a real uh, just disgust with the way that the 1990s played out. And as we know, that is a very important factor in politics today. Uh, it's almost like a threatening past that uh, powerful people use to say, why we can't do this? We can't do this because it would be back uh, like the 1990s. 
So uh, you're only going to get a little slice of this project in part because I've just started working on it. So I have not gone in a linear fashion uh, with, you know, chapter one, 1934, Pero Yelkino was built. Uh, I've been kind of jumping around. Um, but that said, in the discussion, I'm happy to talk about any aspects of Pirajelkino's history and also always to hear people's suggestions uh, for what are other interesting things that I could, uh, I could explore. So let me say a little bit uh, about what I'm gonna do today. Uh, in my last book, I studied a year and naively I thought this was gonna make for a very easy research project because if I just studied this important year, 1956, I could ignore a lot of things that were afterwards or that were before. Uh, it took me 15 years to write that book, so it did not turn out to be so easy, but many, many subjects in that book, but a short chronology. Uh, for this project, I decided to study a place, uh, a small place, but through a long chronology. So my project is about uh, the specific uh, town or unusual village that was created uh, in the 1930s, specifically to provide special working conditions for eminent social, socialist writers or Soviet writers. Uh, the most famous writers who lived there would probably never have described themselves as socialist writers. They didn't really fit in that canon. Um, but this is Boris Pasternak and Karnyi Chukovsky. They were among the early settlers and they lived in this place up until their deaths in 1960 and 1969, respectively. And today there's museums uh, there. In fact, this picture is taken from one of the windows of the Pasternak House Museum. And this shape that you see is the part of the house that looks like the bow of a ship looking over this beautiful uh, uh, green space with plants and trees and so forth. Mm -hmm. So initially, this village was designed to house 30 writers and their families. But after World War II, the settlement really grew in population and in scope uh, over the next 50 years of Soviet rule. Uh, there was such a demand for housing in the post-war period and so many members of the writers' union that there was a lot of pressure to build some new housing and also some of these old gracious buildings that we'll see uh, in a minute in another slide got subdivided and shared out uh, among multiple families. So in a way, this beautiful, spacious uh, gift to Soviet writers does become a little bit more like the Komunalka, but like the best Komunalka ever, uh, as you'll see. It's really a beautiful place. And also, uh, in the 1950s, they added a uh, proper, what they called a house of creativity, a Dom Tvorchistva, which was essentially kind of a half-resort, half-sanitarium. It was where writers could book a stay for two weeks uh, and have a room to themselves and do some creative activity. Um, and it was a way, again, to kind of pacify writers who weren't among the tiny elite that got these beautiful houses. So let me start by just saying a little bit more about what was Pirodilko and why I think that we should be interested in it. So the houses themselves were called dachas, and I think most of you are probably Russian speakers and have been to Russia. So you know the traditional dacha is a summer dwelling. Uh, it often is not really heated in the winter. Uh, for some people, it's associated with having a vegetable garden, you know, or picking berries or so forth. These are not typical dachas. <laughs> and in fact, some of the material I found from the early years uh, involves people going to visit Pirajelkino for the first time, and they all write back and report. 
these are not dachas. These are houses. <laughs> uh, you know, in more of, as they say, like the British style. Uh, it's kind of their version of the garden, uh, the garden city. So the idea was that writers needed peace and quiet, pakoi, uh, to create, and that this was an example of the state providing uh, this wonderful uh, oasis of sort uh, for Soviet writers. They called uh, Pirudelkino the writer's town, but I think that's really a bit of a misnomer because it wasn't really a town. It didn't have any public infrastructure. There was no school, no public library or club, no sports facilities. There wasn't even a proper shop. So in that sense, it did feel like a dacha community um, that was located uh, off of a railway line, but not really incorporated uh, into uh, a proper town or a proper city. Um, but really, I think almost as like a courtesy title, it was the writer's town. Um, that's what they called it. <clears throat> now, you might be thinking to yourself, hmm, that the Soviet Union was supposed to be about equality, right? Mm -hmm. Look at this house. Like, I want this house. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> there was definitely uh, a worrying moment and a worrying thread that runs through its history about whether this is too elitist to give writers this luxury housing. <laughs> and uh, Maxim Gorky is often credited as being the father of the writer's town, that it was with his you know, blessing that this town was created. But in fact, when you look back at the details, he was not too keen on the idea. He said, why should writers be more isolated from the people? If we settle them all together as a profession, they'll just be cut off uh, from the ordinary world. Uh, and not only that, you know, isn't this uh, creating some kind of private property or fancy bourgeois living that we're, we're against? So from the beginning, there were some tweaks to the way the writer's town worked that undercut the idea of bourgeois private property. Uh, these dachas technically belonged to the literary fund, which was like a subsidiary of the writer's union. And so when a writer uh, received a dacha, what they really got was lifetime usage. And when that person passed away, their family was supposed to vacate the dacha and it would be handed out over to some uh, deserving person. Now the word deserving is also a tricky one. Who deserves this amazing dacha? You might think <laughs> the most socialist writer of all, which would not be Boris Pasternak. But when they made these original choices, they uh, felt obliged to take into account world reputation. And so it really was a mix of people who were in uh, this first 30. Now, I say that the dachas then didn't belong to the writers. They had to pay rent, uh, a not trivial rent, uh, and they often paid for upkeep because the literary fund was not very rapid or generous uh, about upkeep. And so if you really didn't want you know, a drafty uh, window or uh, buckling parquet floors, often you fixed it, uh, you fixed it yourself. So uh, what was the purpose of Piridelkina? V.I.W. Oh, it, it's, the, um, the, it's the literary museum, uh, which is named after V.I. Dahl, who's like a literary encyclopedist. Dictionary. Yeah, dictionary by Dahl. Yeah. But so I'm just, yeah, I'm crediting that it, I don't have the rights to use this photo. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, why, that's who I borrowed it from. So, yeah. Uh, 
So the other thing about Peter Delkina to know is that it was a place that was supposed to be designed around intellectual activity. So this is a contemporary photo of Tchaikovsky's House Museum, but you can see how he had this large, gorgeous desk and a beautiful view. Uh, he also had a balcony in nice weather. He would sit outside on his balcony and write. Um, so the idea was that uh, the writer could leave the city where people were constantly interrupting him or dropping in or there were noisy neighbors or noisy children or something uh, and have this peaceful rural setting. Now, in retrospect today, as I said, there's kind of a rosy glow over what Pirudelkino was like. Uh, and indeed, in the early days especially, it was a fairly tight-knit community. Even though people had different politics, they were all kind of marooned in this uh, newly built settlement together. So they shared rides to town, they brought each other letters and supplies, uh, their wives played mahjong uh, and cards together, their children played together, um, and they strolled and talked about their work, uh, and they gave readings uh, in their houses. So it seems very sunny. Uh, it's a, a topic for another lecture is that, of course, it was founded in 1934. Within three years, you're in the height of the purges, and many writers are, in fact, arrested uh, from their dachas. So it was not all sunshine. But why it matters, uh, I think that uh, the whole existence of Perijelkino speaks to the way that the state and intellectuals uh, interacted and were sometimes mutually dependent on each other. So the writers are accepting this generous gift from the state, but it's, a, it's not a free gift. It comes with an expectation of certain kinds uh, of service. And so looking at Perijelkino, we can see uh, this use of resources, this mutual dependence. Uh, there's also some interesting angles about how the writers themselves sometimes advocated as a group or advocated for themselves. Um, but it really was a property system, I think, that shows its socialist roots. Uh, and so therefore, in talking about the 1990s, we can see that the end of the Soviet Union is going to be a period of rupture where economic relations and political relations have changed, uh, and the coming of the market is going to bring a lot of disruption uh, to Perijelkino. And so my argument for today is that by the end of the 1990s, Perijelkino is increasingly depicted as a paradise that's been lost, or nearly lost, uh, and that this image bolsters nostalgia for the Soviet past and amplifies criticism of the market economy. But what I really want to do today is kind of complicate that picture by looking at what structures and practices, both old and new, really shape the quality of life in the writer's town. Because I think the general story that the market is hard, you know, we know that story. So, so what can we learn by looking uh, at Pirijelkino? So uh, I want to set the scene uh, by describing what is one of my favorite pieces of what I like to call moody journalism about Pirijelkino. And this was actually a radio essay. So uh, you can listen to it if you're interested. I can send you the link. Um, it, uh, it has great background sounds. So this essay was, was created in 1997 by the journalist Maria Rajovskaya and she entitled it, Farewell to Perijelkina. And it opens with the sound of howling dogs. Uh, 
and alluding to the empty streets that are named after these once famous writers, Rachovskaya notes that these homeless dogs, quote, <laughs> seem like the only residents. She wanders through the writer's town and she catalogs all sorts of signs of decay. Uh, at the cafeteria of the almost deserted house of creativity, half of the lights are off, there's only one waitress, uh, and she is an elderly woman who wants to reminisce about the old days when Tchaikovsky and other famous writers uh, livened the place up. But when Rachovskaya looks around the dining room, uh, she counts two schoolgirls, a deaf-blind poet and his wife, an unknown critic in a wheelchair, and the 81-year-old poet-songwriter Nikolai Trapkin, who refuses to perform for her and her, her tape recorder, even though he's a songwriter, because he has a stutter. So I think the cumulative effect of these images is to say that this building and its human contents have seen better days, um, that the, the golden days are over. And as her essay continues, we see that the same is true of Perijelkino's Dacha. She talks to the director of the Tchaikovsky House Museum, but he explains that he doesn't lead tours anymore. He's too busy dealing with a leaky roof, a drunk watchman, uncollected trash, and <laughs> trespassers. And he says, while some of the neighbors have managed to keep uh, their gardens and houses in good repair, others have simply let it run wild. Moreover, Rachovskaya discovers that some of these old, fancy, once fancy dachas uh, that belong to the House of Creativity are being rented out to outsiders for very small sums of money and a contribution towards maintenance. So she interviews uh, the wife of a banker who explains that uh, as part of the rental deal, they've put in a proper bathroom. And so this cottage is much better than all the other cottages <laughs> on the territory. And when Rachovskaya asks her what she and her family like to read, like how do they like the writer's town, the woman is kind of stumped. And then finally she says, well, my husband really likes detective novels. And anybody who knows Russian literature, detective novels are like, you know, like the low-class <laughs> genre. It's not, it's not a good answer uh, to the question. A deeper look in the village uh, shows that there aren't too many writers around, and the writers themselves also seem a bit uh, decrepit. Um, she finds the daughter of the poet Ilya Selvinsky, uh, who remembers coming with her parents in 1934 to choose the site for their dacha. But Selvinsky's daughter says she doesn't feel like she knows anybody personally anymore. Uh, in Peridelkina. The widow of a famous Soviet novelist and herself a writer, Lydia Lebedinskaya, uh, also wants to reminisce about the past and the kind of parties and guests they once had. But she tells Rachovskaya, I think the main deficit right now is the shortage of human interaction, that that's gone from Peridelkina. And finally, uh, she unearths a philosopher, Georgi Gachev, who tells her, that he is quite delighted that his phone has been cut off, presumably because he didn't pay the bill, uh, because he prefers that nobody calls him, and in general he doesn't really like to go out. So this is her, her cast of characters. But I, I love this essay because it is so moody. It does capture this uh, impression that this storied writer's colony has degraded during the 1990s uh, into a place where the nouveau riche have invaded and uh, those who are left from the old part have turned inwards. Uh, and the culprits in this essay, although it's not really Rachovska's job or goal to point out culprits, 
uh, seem to be market forces, uh, hapless intellectuals, which I count myself as a hapless intellectual, so I understand <laughs> that, uh, and the relentless march of time that just everyone here seems old, the buildings are old, the peoples are old, everyone's sort of falling apart. But I want to make the case uh, today, oh, and hold on, I've got a picture for you. So this picture is not from the 1990s. I can tell you a whole story why I don't have actual photos shot in the 1990s. It's from 2021, and it's from a project by this uh, guy who's an amazing photographer, uh, Pyotr Savintsev. I actually joined Instagram only so that I could follow him, although, of course, now I follow other things as well. Um, but in this photo essay, he's capturing one of the dachas that still belongs uh, to sort of the literary world, and you can see that it's almost a bit of a time capsule on the inside. Um, it is not furnished by IKEA. It is furnished, you know, uh, in, a, in a more retro fashion, shall we say. All right, but so in talking about uh, this decay and disarray in Peridelkino, I want to make the case that, yes, it was, of course, part of the post-socialist process of commodification and market reforms, but that it also grew from the structural roots of the enclave, and that really what you have is kind of a hybrid of market forces, uh, but also this persistent legacy uh, of a peculiar kind of relationship between the state and intellectuals. So what I would say is when we think about Perijelkino, we should remember that its existence from the very beginning was managed and heavily subsidized by state-sponsored institutions that held kind of a brittle monopoly over literature, and that would be namely the Writers' Union and its charitable subsidiary, the Lit Fund. These organizations collected and redistributed resources to support literary activities and writers themselves. They had essentially a, a publishing program where they got a certain percentage uh, of revenues from you know, all, all the books, really, that are published in the Soviet Union. Uh, and they then had a big sum of money that they, that they could use. Now, this publishing program, of course, operated often in direct contradiction to market principles. That is, the print runs of books and periodicals weren't really based necessarily on readers' preferences. They often carried a very heavy uh, ideological weight as well. And of course, there was uh, serious censorship. But, you know, the Soviet Union didn't publish those detective novels that people uh, wanted to read in the <laughs> 1990s. They published more serious literature. So by the end of Perestroika, when we're going to start the 1990s, those writers' organizations, like many of the institutions that had once been part of the single-party hegemony, I would say had really fractured more than reform. That is, they hadn't changed themselves quickly or flexibly to keep up with the new situation, uh, they had really broken apart into different pieces. So for instance, cooperative publishing houses had sprung up and started to take over part of the book market in a much more competitive uh, way. And organizations of writers also split because when you start Glasnost and you find out what people really want to say, of course they don't all agree. So there were conservative and patriotic writers that wanted their own organizations uh, and liberal writers who broke off uh, from the writers' union and so forth. So when, uh, in the wake of the August coup attempt and the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, we look at what happens to Perijelkino, a key thing is that the writers' union structures split acrimoniously. And it wasn't clear 
and here I'm really going to need Professor Hendley to consult with me when I study all these court battles. But for decades, they fought over who was the rightful heir to the property and resources of the Writers' Union uh, and the Lit Fund. So these houses didn't get privatized to the writers that lived in them, but it wasn't really clear who was supposed to have control over them either. So I think that this disordered institutional ownership, uh, it kind of creates a, another plane of activity in Peridielkino besides uh, the market. And what it leads to is a strange place where you have a lot of economic inequality side by side, and also a loss of this sense of community that Chelyabinskaya of Shinya, that Lebedinskaya remembered. And it's these factors that led the residents to talk about how Pirodelkino uh, was was dying, as they saw it by the end of the 1990s. So, what did this uh, what did this look like in practice? Um, I'm going to talk about uh, three different factors that I see that really sum up what happened to Pirodelkino. So, uh, the first one is um, the impoverishment of writers of what you could think of as Russia's greatest generation, so the people who had fought World War II. And for my research, I looked specifically at a decade worth of uh, interview-based profiles by this one uh, journalist, Yuri Grybov. He was a war veteran, uh, he was a writer, a longtime journalist, and he resided in Peridelkino himself, uh, in, actually in a dacha that belonged to one of the, the newspapers that was built there uh, in a later time period. So after 1991, he started writing for the conservative military newspaper Krasnaya Zvizda, and he did not quite a weekly feature, but very frequent interviews with literary figures. And so I looked through all these literary figures, trying to identify those who lived in Pirodelkina, uh, and reading what they had to say about the literary world, the contemporary scene, and then sometimes they would talk about Pirodelkino itself. So these interviewees uh, that he found, I think, can be characterized, first of all, by bitterness over the collapse of interest in their past writings and in literature about World War II in general. Uh, <coughs> and we can see the financial and emotional ramifications of this uh, in his profiles. So I'll give you one example. He wrote about a writer named uh, Genrik Goffman, and he opened this profile by describing how this modest, humble man who had written numerous novels about World War II could often be seen in Pirodelkino strolling slowly with his large dog, uh, Tobik, or burning leaves in the yard of his dacha. And Grybov is noting that uh, Goffman seems to have good health, uh, and he's happy to interview him, but he's surprised when he asks uh, Goffman, what are, you, what are you working on? What are you writing at present? And the answer is, nothing. And why should I? The military theme is not respected anymore. It doesn't get published. The great state for which I fought doesn't exist. And I can only write about those times, about war. And then he kind of, as if to explain that he doesn't totally live in the past, he says, well, you know, I do watch television. Sometimes my neighbor, a guy you might have heard of called Bulat Akujava, uh, <laughs> drops by and he brings me his like used newspapers that he gets when he's in Moscow. Um, so, you know, I'm not totally out of the loop. Uh, but then he seems almost overcome by shame and he says uh, 
to his, his comrade, his man of, of similar years, right? He says, maybe I'll begin writing. I'll begin, of course, one must work. So in other words, he's entered this kind of like depressive, marginalized state, but he remembers what it was like. He misses uh, that old uh, sense of being needed. And Grabov's interviews with the World War II generation, they just keep bringing up this theme that those writers now feel unneeded, disrespected, and that as a result, they've really retreated from professional life. They don't go into Moscow to the House of Writers anymore. They don't participate in seminars uh, or workshops. Uh, they don't even gather with each other. Um, and those complaints about why you don't want to go out or go to Moscow have lots of the typical market tropes that everywhere you go, they're selling things from a kiosk on the street and it's yucky and you know taxis are too expensive and so <laughs> forth. Um, but they also mention that they don't go out as much in Pirydelkino, that fear of crime, this is especially for you, Arseni, fear of crime has forced them uh, to build higher fences and to exercise more caution in going out. And they tell stories about how one pensioner was like hit on the head and they stole his whole you know, pension out of his, uh, out of his pockets. Uh, and they're poorer. They have started keeping vegetable gardens. Uh, one poet even raises chickens, uh, which a liberal newspaper makes fun of him for having these chickens and he's <laughs> like permanently offended uh, by that factor. Um, and I would say that, surprisingly to me, this marginalization, I don't know why it was surprising to me, I guess I just hadn't thought about these people as being really defeated, but the big literary bosses, that is not the guys who are the most brilliant writer, but the ones who controlled the literary uh, union and so forth, or were the editors of papers um, and you know, exercised all kinds of censorship, also felt really marginalized. So Gribov interviews in 1984 this formerly very influential editor of Literaturnae Gazeta, who tells him that his life now is very boring, frankly speaking. I have become unneeded by anyone. No one phones. No one asks for anything. Now, any of you who've had an administrative position, think how delightful that is. No one asks yeah. for anything, right? Like, that does sound like paradise to me. Uh, but for uh, Alexander Tchaikovsky, this is a huge blow to who he is. Um, and he passes on six months later, and Grabov puts this quote uh, in his obituary. But he also adds an observation that when they had met for the last time in Peter Djelkino, that the writer had had on his desk a, quote, almost complete manuscript, which he stroked gently with his hand as if it were a baby's head. And Gribov says, he worked up to the last hour, and he fell as soldiers fall in battle. So what a great, complicated image. On the one hand, he's totally unneeded. He's been pushed to the side. On the other hand, he's like a soldier falling in battle because he didn't give up uh, his writing even as he was push to the edge. So uh, if you are a writer who lives in beautiful Perydelkino, you can still have that solitary pleasure of composing uh, your works. Uh, but the overall feeling was a sense of uh, being marginalized, and I said impoverished, because these writers are not making the money they made before when the state decided how many copies of their novels were printed. And now it's a competitive thing. OK. I think, yes, I have another slide, hold on. Okay. So the second factor I wanna mention is institutional 
decay. And here I mean institutional decay in the literal sense of the word. Uh, so as the Lit Fund itself became poorer, losing its old source of revenue, um, it also could no longer afford necessarily to upkeep uh, and maintain these dachas. A very small number of writers, uh, most notably Yevgeny Yevtushenko and Andrei Voznesensky, they did fine because they were able to lecture abroad or in the case of Yevtushenko teach abroad. He lived abroad for most of this time period. Uh, and with that money, they could improve their living conditions. Uh, and they actually lobbied very hard for a model that would have allowed them to privatize their houses in Perijelkino because they could have afforded to pay at least some part uh, of the worth of that. Um, but the Lit Fund refused. There was, they understood if they let those dachas go, they would never get them back. It's an asset you could only, you could only spend once. But most of the dacha owners uh, really got by with very minimal maintenance. And we can see this uh, also with the House of Creativity. So there it is. This was this neoclassical wing that was uh, built in the mid-1950s. And it had these sort of Spartan uh, single rooms where you could go and stay and set up your typewriter. Uh, you had to share a bathroom with other writers. But you know, Soviet people are tough people. This, yeah. <laughs> this was not a deterrent uh, to most of them. There was a cafeteria, so you got three meals a day. Um, Honestly, it, it, it doesn't sound so bad. I would definitely have been interested myself. Um, and then in 1969, they added a new, more mod modernist uh, wing to the building that included a movie theater, a billiards room, a bar, uh, and a spacious <laughs> library. And that really kind of amped up the feeling that this was a resort as well and made it very popular. So in the 1990s, uh, this resort aspect of it meant that it was a great candidate for commercialization because you know, you're supposed to be renting these rooms to you know, modest members of your own profession, but it's kind of like a hotel. So you, know, you can think more entrepreneurially. So for this part of my research, I uh, tracked uh, developments at the House of Creativity based on diaries and correspondence from two writers who stayed there almost every year throughout the 90s. One was a St. Petersburg uh, conservative figure named Nikolai Konyaev, and the other was the poet Ina uh, Lesnyanskaya. Uh, and their uh, sort of first-person accounts of this time period show what the gradual commercialization looks like and also uh, a decline in maintenance that led it by the 2000s to essentially be, be, it was being used as like a hostel for migrant workers. Um, so definitely not uh, what, the, what the plan had been. But I'll give you a few colorful uh, examples from this time period. So uh, the writer Nikolai Konyaev, uh, although he found Pirjelkino preferable to Moscow, which he described as having dirty cooperative kiosks and giant rats uh, running around <laughs> behind them, uh, he was disappointed uh, that the Dome Torchestva already uh, in 1991, at the end of the year, uh, was starting to pinch pennies. And his example was that at the start of his two-week stay, uh, you could get your sugar for your tea from a sugar bowl on the table. And by the end of the stay, they'd taken the sugar bowl away, and you had to pay for your sugar cube. Uh, if you wanted to sweeten your tea. Little did he know, this was only the start. Um, he uh, comes back uh, 
in the spring of uh, 1993, uh, he first stays in a hotel in downtown Moscow, which he found to be horribly expensive and full of cockroaches. So, I mean, there's this whole dystopian theme, right, of decay. Um, so that he comes out to Periodialkona and he says, well, you know, at least here there's still writers and residents, um, but it's not the same. In the old days, the writers would sit around the one TV that was on their hallway in the evening and watch the news together. And now there are these petty business people and accountants who prefer to watch Mexican soap operas. And so that, again, is a sign of like the low-class audience. But he says probably it's too expensive now for a lot of writers to stay here, and that must be the cause of this change. But less than a year later, uh, he comes back and he finds that things are even worse from the perspective of who's staying at the Dom Torchstva. He writes that on the surface, it looks pretty good. The old building is still there. Uh, there's more cars parked on the grounds than there used to be, but it seemed okay. The clientele, however, as he put it, was notably younger, more expensively dressed, and as they say nowadays, uh, buff, or at least that's how I've translated this word, upakolvani. It means kind of like, I don't know, but I don't know how to like muscly, these muscle men. So Kanaev is given a room next to the bar, and he complains that late at night he can hear all these coarse conversations and swearing, and one morning he goes outside and he sees that there's drops of blood on the snow outside the Dome Tvorchestva, and he asks one of the ladies that work there, what happened? Were the locals, meaning kind of like the peasants who live around here, <laughs> brawling? And she says, no, these are our bread and butter customers, our karmiltsi the new Russians. And he is so upset by the thought that what he calls speculators and thieves are now the financial mainstay of uh, the House of Creativity that it, it destroys his peace of mind. He describes very vividly how he goes to sit in the library and he takes a favorite volume of Pasternak's poetry that has these beautiful poems about Pirijelkina, but he's too upset to even enjoy uh, this pleasure of reading. So. If we think about uh, that infrastructure, there's physical decay as they don't keep up the maintenance. Uh, and also, I think he would say sort of a moral decay of who's there. Um, but I included this picture as well because I think it's a great example of how, uh, how can I put this? When you look at the material culture, it's not like they go in and say, how can we make the Dome Torchestva more attractive to new visitors? They just pile new things on top of the old things. So here you have this like vintage clock, and next to it you have the ATM machine. And they kind of are the same size. I don't know, I thought they looked like a, it was like old and new uh, pairing here. Uh, but that's what, they, that's what it looked like uh, in 2000. Okay, let me see how I'm doing on time. I think hopefully I'm okay. Um, the third factor I wanted to mention uh, was commons in the community. So there's changes in the common space as well, the town's streets, its landscapes, and even the air itself. And here I'll give another example from Grabov. Uh, on Victory Day in 1997, he goes around and visits all of his friends in Peridelkino who are veterans. And he says they're all concerned about the topic that the writer's town is dying. And this is how he phrases it, he says. Where the venerable masters of the word used to sit at the samovar, some grungy youths now hang out. 
Smoke from barbecued meat floats over the village and vile music deafens. Everywhere, stone mansions pop up and on Lermontov Street, where the Lit Fund's warehouse was, was handed over to a Turkish transport company, huge vehicles have almost blocked the lane. Meanwhile, in the protected forest, 20 five-story cottages are being built. Who allowed this? Why? The writers have published an open letter to the president of Russia in the newspaper, and they're waiting for help. So here's an example, I think, of the kind of houses that he would have found Ooh. offensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really not a very likable shade of purple, uh, right? So uh, three years later, he kind of plagiarizes himself, and he uses that same description over again, except now he adds that there's too many satellite dishes uh, and high walls. And here's my example. You can see the wall is even higher. And I'm a very frustrated short person photographer. So I want to take pictures of these houses, but I'm too short. I can't see over these, these high walls. So it was quite a challenge to kind of try and sneak around uh, and take a few pictures. But I think that quote kind of shows how uh, commercial activity and inequality uh, from the market have penetrated Peridelkina. Um And what had once been this place of serene beauty and quietness is now facing the existential threat. Uh, in part because green spaces are being built up by these very large infill housing, um, but also because the city itself is coming closer and closer to Peridelkino. It's not so much out in the country anymore. And then uh, these kind of houses are really very off-putting to the people who live there. Uh, and here I'll mention the work of the architectural specialist Sonia Hurt, who wrote a wonderful book about uh, architecture and the market in Bulgaria, and she describes this kind of single gated mansions as a form of spatial secession, so where you sort of wall yourself off from the community around you. And she says that in Bulgaria, you could see that people did that to escape what they saw as the disorder of poorly maintained common spaces or neighbors from lower social strata, perceived threats of crime, and the perceived envious gazes of people walking by. So that was me. I was in that category of like people peeking <laughs> over their fence that makes them want to secede anymore. But I think you can see how for a place that was supposed to be a community for a kind of profession and where strolling in all weather with all kinds of company, children, dogs, guests from the Dome Torchestva, neighbors, etc., was a mainstay of social life, having these walls really undoes that. Um, and it, it's a, a move away uh, from the old picket fences. Here's another wall. I think this kind of fits with the model of what they call prison architecture, right? <laughs> like, would you really want to live on the inside of that wall and have that be your view? It's so awful. Whereas this sort of thing is like the old Pridelk, uh, you know, these kind of picket, uh, picket fences. So it seems like I'm giving you a uh, kind of a sad uh, picture here that the community has really disappeared. There's not a sense of consensus among writers uh, anymore, and definitely not even uh, in this special sacred place of Piridelkino. I think that what we can see here, and one of the reasons why the wild 90s are so unpopular, is that you have this social stratification. But unlike in like a pure market economy, where usually there would be more segregation, like if you owned one of those beautiful old houses in Paris Jelkino, but you were broke and it was America, you would sell that house for a ton of money and buy something that fit your means better. 
But here, the impoverished writers cling on to that space, but all around them, this new wealth uh, is taking over the spaces next to them. So you have like a face-to-face -face confrontation of people who are really in different uh, socioeconomic uh, groups now. And you have that cultural difference between these sort of uh, educated intellectuals uh, and, and the mystery novel readers um, and so forth. So the other thing I'll say, too, is that with time, and this does make it a bit of a sad story, there's just been more and more development in Pirodelkino. So this is already outside the, 19, um, hold on, the 1990s. This is an aerial view. And again, to me, it kind of looks like prison architecture. So over here is the Pasternak House Museum is over here. This is Anatoly Chubais's dacha with his wife, uh, the director, Avdotya Smirnova. Uh, and that used to be the field that Pasternak crossed when he went to the trains. And it was known in Perijelkino as Ni Yasnaya Polyana, so kind of a joke mm -hmm. on Tolstoy's Yas Yasnaya Polyana. Um, but so obviously, you know, it's not that there's no old Perijelkino anymore, but if you think of it kind of percentage wise, it's getting dwarfed uh, by these developments. But there's one more new development that we can think of in Perijelkino. And that is kind of a revival movement, uh, a somewhat unlikely revival movement. Um, with money uh, from Roman Abramovich, the oligarch, uh, there has started a sort of charitable project to rebuild the old house of creativity and turn it into a place uh, for Russian literature of a new century. So as uh, one of the glossy magazines wrote, that this is an effort to, quote, resurrect from the ruins the most sought after place of Russian literature in the 20th century. Uh, and they say, seminars, lectures, workshops, and creative residences are now taking place on the site that had been occupied by dilapidated VIP saunas, banquet halls with collapsed ceilings, and so forth. So they, all those negative things that happened uh, in the Dome Tvorchestva. So now, if you go, you can get the fancy coffee. Uh, They've opened a fancy restaurant that apparently specializes in Soviet milkshakes. I don't know about you, Kathy. I don't think I ever had a Soviet milkshake. I would definitely have eaten one if they were available, but, but they claimed that there was uh, such a thing. Um, and you can even stay in some refurbished rooms of the literary uh, hotel. And I think here you can see, like, this is a carefully decorated room with this super retro vibe. And I'm sure plenty of fashionable uh, Muscovites would have liked uh, to stay here, uh, at least up until all the terrible events of last year. So this project has kind of brought out some of the old residents of uh, Pirodelkino, but it really more attracts, I would say, wealthy people who live uh, near the Skolkova Innovation Park, uh, which is just a short drive away. Um, and it's really creating kind of a brand that includes uh, intellectual you know, attractions, um, this is, they did this great uh, looking exhibit uh, about the material life of writers. Um, and so you can come and kind of indulge in these uh, intellectual pastimes. But it's really making Perijelkino into more of like a tourist hub. So the last time I was there in the summer, which was before the pandemic, before the war, 
uh, I was really astonished that walking up and down the streets, you would hear these competing tours going on. So like guides with these like uh, loud microphones saying, <laughs> and here Pasternak met his lover, the you know gorgeous Olga Ivinska and so forth. Uh, so I think that aspect of it is probably not that exciting to the residents. Like on the one hand, they would like to see the, the Dome Fortress would be a place where writers could meet and create, uh, but it only really works uh, in this new material condition. Okay, um, so they might salvage some cultural core, but it's gonna be a different model. Um, a model where they need the writers to be there to be kind of like part of the window dressing and what makes it special, but it's not really gonna be a town uh, for writers anymore. Uh, in part, because although they were able to take over the House of Creativity, they still can't take those individual dachas, and it's not much of a model um, to use them, really, yet. Um, so let me just finish on maybe a slightly uh, sad note here, which is that uh, in writing about Perry Delcano uh, after the invasion of Ukraine, I've really been having a little bit of a crisis of conscience as to whether this is the right topic to work on now. It does seem somewhat maybe trivial in the face, right, of what's going on. Um, but in the last month or so, I started to lean back into the direction that we do really need to know about the relations between intellectuals and the state. And that's partly because we can see that the modern Russian state is, again, using its material resources to reward a certain group of writers and using its power to blackball other writers. Uh, and I, for one, have become a regular follower of the Telegram channel, which is called, in kind of ironic fashion, the engineers of the human soul, which is what, um, uh, you know, Gorky and Stalin kind of agreed that Soviet writers were meant to be. So this channel uh, on Telegram, it, it posts about patriotic writers and their wonderful poetry using the letter Z and so forth, and like dumps on unpatriotic, you know, writers who are living in Israel or Germany or what have you. Uh, but it's just a reminder to me that, you know, the role of intellectuals in creating part of the myth and authority of the state is still really important. Now, it may be more like TV producers and bloggers and not the people who live in Peridelkina, but maybe, uh, maybe the study ultimately will have something to say. But I definitely welcome uh, ideas about that. But I'm going to stop now.